to, to begin, let's, let's just use our imagination. Um, set the groundwork. Everyone here has something that they're deeply ashamed of. As I say this, most of us can immediately bring that to mind. Others may have to dig deep to bring it to remembrance. It may be deeply suppressed. So in order to jog our memories, imagine that I had a video of your most shameful act. Imagine if I were to put that act on the projector right now and show the entire congregation. You'd be petrified. You'd squirm in your seat until you rushed out weeping in total shame. Each of us who experienced that would be disgraced, as it were, eternally, and would probably never return to this congregation. Guilt and shame are truly awful experiences. Some of us bear guilt and shame on a daily basis. Some of us have learned how to deal with it by pretending it simply didn't happen. Yet others have truly grappled with their guilt and found freeing forgiveness. Perhaps what came to mind for you about your shame, most shameful act happened a decade ago. Perhaps it happened last year, last night. Maybe it's going to happen tonight or in 10 years. But make no mistake, each of us are not strangers to guilt and shame. We're going to experience it till the day we die, actually. It can be debilitating. It can cripple your relationships with God, with your spouse, with your children, with your church, with your coworkers, people who are debilitated by it typically avoid deeper relationship for being exposed for what they really are. Now I want to say off the front that there, as a caveat, there, there is a role for guilt in the life of people on earth. Uh, there are people who do not experience guilt and shame who absolutely should. They bypass the God-given mechanism as a result of the fall, and they don't, they don't want to feel it. Their actions are shameless, guiltless. They've seared their consciences. So there is a proper role for guilt and shame in the life of a Christian, but its main purpose is not to drive us to ourself and self-atonement or others and others' solutions of atonement. It's to drive us to Christ. Now imagine with me that videotape I mentioned is of your entire life, and it's titled, Your Name, fill in the blank. It will be used as evidence before the Lord in an official courtroom setting. The videotape will be played and measured against the Ten Commandments, God's perfect and holy law. How would you do? How would my life stack up against God's perfection? How great will our shame be on that day? In order to see the greatest picture of not only guilt and shame, but also of Christ and the gospel, we're going to turn to Zechariah chapter 3. So as you click or turn there, I believe it will be on the screen. Let me set the stage for Zechariah. Zechariah, like Malachi, which Pastor Michael preached on, uh, I believe, last year, is a post-exilic prophet. Zechariah was not just a prophet, but a priest, and he was in a prominent priestly family. He's preaching to the people who returned from shameful Babylonian captivity in 520 B.C. 
They're defeated, small in number, and have much opposition as they face rebuilding the temple, which is their main goal and task from God. Their guilt is hanging over their heads in failure as they went to captivity for repeated rejection of God, and their guilt is following them like a cloud as they return to build the temple. The temple was the center of the world. This is where God dwelled, and their temple was destroyed. And God said, rebuild to Haggai. He says, rebuild to Zechariah. He said, make sure your heart is pure as you rebuild. There are many ways you can outline the book in, in regard to the visions. Most commentators argue that there are eight visions from chapters one through five. Um, very few propose seven visions. Um, those who do see chapter five as a single vision. It, it may not matter. Uh, I'm open to the seven visions, and if there are seven visions, that makes our chapter the heart of the visions. So just a quick recap of the first three visions. First one is the church is in a low place called the deep, while the nations are at ease, but God is going to have mercy on his church. The second, God is going to judge the nations at ease as a relief to the church. And the third, God will expand and protect his church. He will be the glory in their midst. And that's where we ended. Now we pick up at the fourth one. If you would look with me at the first part of verse one. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. So we already mentioned that God is showing Zechariah visions, seven or eight in all. And this is the holy of holy of the visions, I believe. In this passage, Joshua as high priest represented Israel, the people of God at that time, the church of God, and by extension, you and me today. So you can appropriately say that God showed him Mark Sherry, or God showed him fill in the blank for your name. And what's the image here that we see? It's Joshua, and think of yourself as Joshua, and what is Joshua doing? Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord. First, the angel of the Lord here is the Lord himself. There is abundant evidence that the angel of the Lord under the old covenant was Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. He forgave sins. Who can do such a thing but God alone? So why is Joshua standing before God Almighty? Well, for those who are familiar with the Old Testament, you have to dig deep and think back to when the high priest would stand before God. What day was this? Does anybody know what Yom Kippur is? It's, it's coming up on October 4th through 5th. It's a holiday for the Jewish people called the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 speaks about this in detail. The high priest would stand before God on this very special day. And what would he do? He would minister before the Lord. He was a representative of the people of Israel to the Lord, vicariously, a substitution. When the Lord looked at the high priest, it's as if he saw his people. And this teaching goes all the way back to the garden, where when Adam sinned, he represented us, and we in him sinned before God. It also goes to the gospel, where when Christ did the act of righteousness, 
He did that on our behalf for us, a representative. Fathers, you are representatives, covenant heads of your household. When you do something, your household is impacted. Presidents, kings, they are covenant heads of their nations. And when they do something, when they go to war, guess what? The nation is at war. So here Joshua is representing the people at that time and really us. And, and look here, and Satan, in verse 3, yeah, verse 3, Satan, is it verse 3? No, it's still verse 1. Um, Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, suddenly, this ministry on the Day of Atonement, the one day a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, it's turned into a courtroom scene where Satan, the accuser, the devil, the slanderer, the serpent, along with all of his seed in him, he's, he's the prosecuting attorney. Now, this, this vision clearly takes place in a heavenly courtroom. Uh, in, in earthly courts, the accuser stands on the right side, and so it is in this vision. And this goes back to the garden where the great deceiver is present to kill and to rob, and in this case, to condemn and accuse. Now, Satan also represents the nation. So there is something deep in this where when God is saying Satan was accusing, because all the people saw were the nations accusing them, the nations attacking them, and Zechariah's teaching them, no, behind those nations is Satan and his seed, and they are doing the work of Satan of accusing so how did Satan accuse? Did he have to say something? What, did he, what, did he, what charges did he bring? Well, I don't think he needed to because look at verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the Lord clothed with filthy garments. Now I surmise that all Satan had to do was point. Look at him. He's filthy. Now this isn't the case of a kid rolling around in mud and, and coming back to his parents in filth. No. Um, according to Leviticus 16, the high priest needed to be perfectly clean with perfectly clean garments because he's facing a holy God and representing an unclean people. The garments that he wore were crucial in this holy ceremony. And when the high priest left, he was commanded to leave the garments lest they become filthy in the world, which is everything outside of the Holy of Holies. So I want to stress this point that the priest had to be impeccably clean. Imagine with me the horror that a Jew at that time would have upon reading this passage. The person representing them was covered in filthy clothes. Now, filthy is a mild word in the English language. But in the original language of the Hebrew, this word is referring to excrement. Human excrement. So this high priest, Joshua, who is supposed to be clean, has on disgusting, pungent fecal matter he is covered in. Filth. And it was unthinkable. It was about the worst thing that could happen to them. To have a high priest with filthy ministry garments on, the one day of the year he would come before the Lord, was absolutely unthinkable. It was the most scandalous thing they could think of. So let the ominous nature of this scene settle on you. Joshua and the people are to be rejected due to this vile representation. And brothers and sisters, and those who are not of the church, that is true of you and of me this morning. 
We have filthy garments on, don't we? Even our righteousnesses, our good deeds, are as filthy rags. Not just our bad, but our good is bad. We are pervasively polluted with sin, as Isaiah says, from the sole of our foot to the crown of our head. It's not just Joshua and the people at this time. No, it's you and it's me. That's how we stand in and of ourselves before God. Today is Sunday, the Lord's Day, is it not? And do we not stand ministering before the Lord, singing and praising and praying? We do. And know for sure that in us, our deeds, good or bad, we are filthy like Joshua, and we should be rejected before God. We are wretched, corrupt, offensive, the command should be given up us, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing and teeth, for they are defiled. That's what God should say. Friend, if you cannot see this truth about yourself, of your utter depravity and utter inability, that means you are in darkness. I've said this before when I was a boy, and my mom's here, she can attest to it. I would go and play at nighttime, and I'd be covered in mud, and I didn't know it because... I wasn't by light. It wasn't until I approached the house that I saw, I'm covered in mud. So if you cannot see your filth, if you think I'm better than others, it's because you're not walking in the light. May we know the gift of God, knowing how exceedingly sinful our sin is. Now, someone might respond, and I, I bet they will, but I pray, but I weep, but I have faith. Who better than Charles Spurgeon to rebuke us with his words? He says, sirs, there is sin in our prayers. They need to be prayed over again. There is filth in the very tears that we shed in penitence. There is sin in our very holiness. There is unbelief in our faith. There is hatred in our very love. There is the slime of the serpent upon the fairest flower of our garden. We are embroidered in sins, and we have, like Isaiah says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, filthy excrement. So let the darkness of your and my nature settle on you. Feel it. Knowing God's holy standards, you would expect God to say to Joshua, the Lord rebuke you, O Joshua and the people. You have violated my commands. You are covenant breakers. You have tested me time and time again, and though my patience was long-suffering, you persisted in your rebellion. Be cast in the fire. But instead, something glorious happens here. It's marvelous, gracious. Look with me at verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Whenever I sing the song, however, or how deep the Father's love for us, I always personalize that first line. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make this wretch his treasure. Not a wretch, this, this wretch. Here we have God the Son, Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, rebuking Satan in the name of God the Father. Revelation 12 gives us a very similar picture. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, 
now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been cast down, who accuses them day and night before our God. This picture in Zechariah 3 is a foreshadowing of what Christ would do to Satan at the cross. Remember that Satan had access to heaven in the Old Testament. We see that with Job. And he came and accused all of God's saints, particularly Job, we see. But when Christ came, he said he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And in Revelation, we see him cast down. His head has been crushed by the head crusher. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. But their salvation did not come from them. It does not come from you and it does not come from me. It depended on the election of God as he is the one who chose Jerusalem. Verse 2, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. He didn't choose the Amalekites. He didn't choose the Canaanites. He didn't choose any of the ites. He chose Jerusalem. And if you are in Jesus, Hebrews 12 says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You and I are there as believers. You are the true Jew as a believer. Romans 2, Romans 9. But how do you know, how do I know if I'm chosen? Many ask this. It's simple. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Is he the only hope of your salvation? If you believe that in your heart, then you're saved. You're a chosen person. God in grace has reached down and chosen to save you. There's no need to fight against the, doctor, the, the Scripture's doctrine of election and predestination. It's a fleshly response. It's from our culture. It's from our own flesh. God has revealed his will perfectly. Charles Spurgeon says, Some men cannot endure to hear the doctrine of election. I suppose they like to choose their own wives, but they are not willing that Christ should choose his own bride, the church. So what's the brand plucked from the fire? Uh, this is a little bit more challenging, and there are several different interpretations, but I take the fire as the exile and the suffering the people experience under Babylonian captivity. God could have left them in that fiery furnace, as it's called in other parts, but he delivered them and he spared them. And no doubt there's application we can draw from this, Many say that's the fire of hell. That's how Charles Wesley and others have interpreted this. I, I, think that's a, I think that's an extension of it. We as believers have been plucked out of the fires of hell. Not an earthly and temporary pain, but an eternal and conscious torment. Everybody here has probably been burned by a match or something like that, and we recoil in pain. In hell, you recoil from pain to pain. There is no relief. A lot of people today claim, claiming to be evangelicals are rejecting the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. They're saying we're annihilated. The scripture's use of the language of eternal punishment is so clear, we must use it and believe it. There's one doctrine I don't like, and it is the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. John Calvin said it is the most horrid doctrine. There, is, there should be nothing more controversial than someone going to hell eternally. That's horrible. But it says here that believers have been snatched from that. 
So the Lord rebukes Satan rather than Joshua and the people because of his sovereign predestining election. And what's the result of the election of God? What were Joshua and all believers chosen into? Look at, with me at verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Here, my friends, is one of the most clear pictures of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, when your children are young, uh, now my ours are getting a little older, but we would read them picture books to show them because they can't see, they can't read the words, so they can't understand the concepts, so we show them pictures. Here God is showing his church a picture. In fact, the entire Testament, Old Testament is kind of a picture book to the early church. Israel's enemies, their armies, their lands, their temple, their sacrifices, their ceremonies, and yes, even the priest's garments were all pictures of the coming Christ for them. Removing the filthy clothes, which represented sin, and giving new clothes, which represents righteousness, is a picture of the gospel. This is what we call the doctrine of double imputation, the great exchange. God justly is able to impute our sin to Christ, that's once, and then he imputes his righteousness from his life to us, double imputation. And it's the greatest news you will ever hear in your life. I do find interesting that you can see the doctrines of grace, tulip, in this passage. Uh, we've seen total depravity, where Joshua is thoroughly corrupted and helpless. We've seen God's unconditional election, where he chooses. And now, in verse 4, we see particular redemption. When the high priest ministered before the Lord, he had 12 stones on his breastplate, to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, not the Hittites, not the Amalekites, not any of those ites. The double imputation belonged to the Israel of God alone. He didn't go in for everybody. He went in for the people of God. And we also see God's grace is truly irresistible. Commands were given, remove and clothe, Joshua was chosen to respond. He would not resist. Lazarus isn't going to say, no, Lord, I'm going to stay dead. No, Lazarus, come forth. I said to you in your blood, live. That is how God operates. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. The exchange was inevitable based on God's decree and command. And soon we're going to see the P, the perseverance of the saints. So let's just take a moment and realize how freeing all of this is. <laughs> My friends, if you are still in your sins and laden with guilt and shame as we discussed earlier, or if you're already a believer and carry around the weight of your guilt and shame unnecessarily, please listen, listen to me very carefully. All your guilt and all my guilt and shame are too much to bear. You cannot bear it. It will crush you. You need a substitute. You need an advocate. You need one who is both God and man, 
one who is God who is strong enough to bear the punishment deserved for sin, and one who is man who can represent us to God, us men unto God. And the one we declare to you is Jesus Christ, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Savior of the world. So I, I urge anyone here who has not yet trusted in him, put your trust in him. Take it away from yourself and the world and place it in him and him alone. Repent of your sins and believe, and he will impute his righteousness to you. And don't wait. Don't wait one more minute. You know why? Because Monday not, might not be here for you. My, my cousin's uh, preteens just got in a car accident yesterday. Pre-teenagers. The age of our kids. They just got in a car accident. Just driving somewhere after a wedding. And, and they're basically on life support. That can, that can happen to you. That can happen to me. You're not guaranteed till the end of this service. So believe and repent and do it now. This isn't manipulation. This is an urge similar to what Paul would do. This isn't, oh, hell, you're going to hell, you better believe. No, this is the presentation of a gracious Savior. As you see your sin, as you feel the weight of it, and you know you cannot bear it on that judgment day, this, this is the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath for your sins. There are a lot of pastors I've heard of who actually... They'd been preaching for decades. This, a similar message like this, the gospel. And they realized in the middle of their sermon, I, I have not believed. I have not repented. I need to be saved. There's no reason to pretend. You don't gain anything. Nobody here gains anything. Don't pretend. If, if, you, if you have not believed, let me make this clear. You're not okay with God. If I've not believed, I'm not okay with God. So believe and repent truly, and you will see it is the gift of God. And when you do, he'll justify you. He'll declare you righteous. But he doesn't just justify you. He also sanctifies you. He equips you for service. Look with me in uh, verses 5 and 6. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. In this, in this part we see, it, it's as if Zechariah is abruptly interjecting with excitement at this great exchange and asked the attendant standing by to put the clean turban on him. Now, the turban resembled a crown. So Joshua is being crowned with honor and glory in his redemption and the people with him in their part of their restoration to the temple. On top of the priest's turban, there was a stone or gem with the words, Holy to the Lord, written on it. And this was to first show that the people were dedicated to serving God, set apart from others. Joshua is reinstated to the priesthood. The priesthood had been, cap had been scattered throughout captivity, and now he's reinstated and he's commissioned, called, cleansed, and now he can do the work of God. Now, I want to just take a moment and say that we do believe that justification is a singular work of God. It is monergistic, one work of God, one work. You did not contribute anything more to your salvation than you did your birth. You were born, and when you, were, you believed, you were born again. 
Now, sanctification is, I believe, synergistic. That means we work together. Now, it's not a humanism type of sanctification, but it is, it is like a treadmill. <laughs> the treadmill is on, you get on it, and you're walking. It's a cooperation, and we are told to cooperate in holiness. It's not just going to happen. You have to work hard. You have to fight. When the Israelites went to war, God told them, the victory is yours. You are going to win. But they had to strap on their armor. They had to pick up their swords, their spears, and they had to exert energy to win that war. They were going to win, but they had to work. We're going to win, but there's work. We don't work for our salvation. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, part of this holiness includes service. Some Christians, uh, myself included, feel incredibly impotent ministering to others or before the Lord. And, And sometimes it's due to guilt and shame from the past. Or maybe it's just you don't feel qualified for one reason or another. I'm not, I'm not worthy. <laughs> but look at this picture. Joshua was just clothed with filthy garments, and God didn't say, you know, I'll justify you. I don't think you're fit for service. No. And that's not the case with you or with me. No matter how filthy we have been, once we're justified, we are sanctified, and God has given you everything you need to serve him. It's messy. <laughs> it's really messy. Lots of sin and imperfection, but you have to work because that's what God has called you to. And so we see Joshua's call to service in verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right access among those who are standing here. So we see the last letter of the tulip here, perseverance. Joshua had to persevere. He had to work. Now, there's two things going on in this verse I want to call out. First, priests and leaders had general requirements or qualifications, just like the pastors here do. They have to meet a standard. So it is here. Second, the law was God's perfect righteous requirement. And Joshua could never obey this verse perfectly. And so this is setting something up, as are all the commands of God, of God that one is to come who would obey this command. The people in the Old Testament were always disappointed with every prophet, priest, and king. Everyone, even David, the greatest king, Oh, that's, that's going to be our Messiah. No, adultery, murder. Oh, what, what about fill in the blank? They're all failures. They don't have the power. They were waiting for a prophet who could not just speak the word of God, but speak it in such a way that the heart would be converted. They're waiting for a king who would not just win earthly battles, but win the battle for eternity. And they're waiting for a priest, a high priest, who could offer not sins for himself and the uh, sacrifice for himself and the people, not the blood of animals, but a perfect, righteous, spotless sacrifice. And that was himself, and that was Jesus. So this is leaving anticipation for the church at this time. And we're going to see it clearly more in verse 8. Hear now, hear now, O Joshua the high priest, 
you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. You see here, the priests, they were assigned. Everything in the Old Testament is a sign pointing towards Christ. They were a type of the future antitype. Think of the type as the ink that's left on the paper and the antitype as the rubber stamp that leaves that print. Type and antitype. These priests were a type of Christ. They were a shadow of the reality. And they were expecting a branch. Now, there are only four designations of the word branch in the Old Testament. I'll go through them in order. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So, one, the branch is going to be a king. Next verse. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he'll be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So he's God. He's the Lord. We also see in Zechariah 3, in our passage, I'll bring my servant the branch. He's a servant. So you have king, God, servant. And then just a few chapters later in Zechariah 6, 12, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hold, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. And we see he's a man. So when a Jew who's familiar with the anticipation of the branch under the old covenant comes to the New Testament, they read Matthew and they see Jesus presented as king. And they read Mark and they see Jesus represented as servant. And they come to Luke and they see Jesus represented as the son of man. And then they come to John and they read that Jesus is represented as God. So this, this is a, Jesus is a fulfillment of the branch. He is king, he is God, he is servant, and he is man. And his name, furthermore, means Yahweh saves. It's the same name for Jesus in the New Testament because he's going to save his people from their sins. And we're assured of this more in verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So what's the stone? <laughs> There's a lot of interpretations out there. Uh, if <laughs> just, I'll just give a couple, few, for sake of time. Um, it would really take minutes to break down, several minutes to break this all down. So if you want to talk through it, come and see me. We can have a friendly debate about it. I, I'm open. Um, these, these range from the stone, the, the, the stone is the stone on the high priest's breastplate, the messianic kingdom, the cornerstone of the temple, all the way to another title for the Messiah. Uh, and many say that the seven eyes are the sevenfold spirit of God or the sevenfold ministry of Christ that we see in Isaiah 11. Uh, I'll give you my view. My view, and I'm open to being corrected, is that it is the stone or golden plate on the high priest's turban. We saw that in verse 5. Uh, the golden plate was put on the high priest's head, and it says, I have put the, put the stone before Joshua. The plate had engravings holy to the Lord, which that consists of he seven Hebrew letters, characters, kadosh, something, I don't know, Hebrew, which I understand that to be the eyes. 
and then I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. I believe that harkens back to the crucial role the golden plate played on the Day of Atonement. Uh, but no matter what, what view you take, you, you have to admit, and all com most commentators do, this is a type of Christ in one way or another. It is the type of the coming one. Maybe he's the stumbling stone, the rock of offense, um, but this, this is a picture of Christ because he is the only one who is holy to the Lord. And he entered not the, temp the temple or the tabernacle, but the holy of holies in heaven as a sufficient sacrifice once for all. Uh, how about that passage or that, that part of the verse says, the iniquity of the land removed in a single day. Uh, this is speaking of Jesus' first coming, his earthly ministry. So to all my Bible scholars out there, what was the single day that God dealt with the iniquity of the land? Anybody know? What else could it be than when Christ suffered and died to take on the sins of the world? He took our sins in his body on that tree. He absorbed the wrath of God to remove iniquity. For Zechariah, this is future, but for us, it's in the past. Daniel says similarly that Christ came to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity to bring everlasting righteousness. So what happens when God removes the iniquity of the land in a single day? Look with me at verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Uh, one commentator gloriously sums up this verse by writing, our chapter ends with a beautiful picture of paradise. It's a picture of perfect peace and abundant provision. Uh, we're going to see the similar picture in chapter 14, where basically paradise has been restored in terms of pilgrimage and worship. People of all nations come to Jerusalem to worship the king, the God of Israel, and to join the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, that, that little phrase, in that day, that is an eschatological phrase. All that means is it's, it's end times. Um, many Christians, um, like my friends, my good friend Simon, uh, Gary, and I guess now Michael, he's flip-flops his position. What happened, bro? Um, they're going to defer this event to a literal 1,000-year reign in the future. That is an orthodox view. That's, that's, that's great. If you, if you hold that. That's, that's fine. I got no qualms with you. Um, but I want to ask a question. Will every one of the literal Jews in the literal millennium invite his literal neighbor to come under his literal vine and fig tree? Will it be, will it be required? Will every Jew be commanded to, take, to make sure he has a vine and a fig tree to make sure this is fulfilled? Or, and this is my view, is this common language we can find in other places of Scripture. For instance, after King David had conquered the nations and left peace for his son Solomon, there's prosperity in the land, and, and right in the middle of the description of this vast prosperity, 1 Kings 4.25 says, And Judah and Israel shall live in safety from Dan even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So I, I don't mean that to be like a uh, hit at, above the fifth rib for them. That's just a loving little jest. I, I do believe that uh, Christ, when he came, he established the kingdom, the millennium, 
and it is growing and growing and taking over the world. That is, that is my view, that the kingdom is here. It's in your midst. Okay, so now, now that we've gone through the chapter, maybe insufficiently, just for sake of time, but think back to the scenario I started out with, with that videotape. Uh, it's on the display. It's showing your shameful deeds, my shameful deeds, and everybody can see us for what we are. Phonies, guilty, shamed, discredited, our names tainted, reputations that we hold in high society as we interact with them, ruined. Even the good things we do, we do for our own glory. Do we not many times? And not for the glory of God. The videotape exposes every evil deed, thought, word, action. Now, imagine with me that there's a videotape of the life of Jesus Christ, who also happens to be the judge in your case. Think of that tape on display showing his perfect and sinless life, sacrificial death, burial, resurrection. It shows how he loved his father, the only one who's done this, with all of his heart, soul, strength, mind. The only one. We've never done that for a millisecond. You have never loved God perfectly. Jesus did, though. He kept the law every jot and tittle. We've broken every jot and tittle. He kept it. Doesn't, doesn't this humble man, doesn't this exalt Christ, by the way? If you don't feel humbled by this, you're not understanding, you're not hearing. Christ had a perfect, spotless record, impeccable, positive righteousness. And just before the gavel is struck down with judgment, Jesus says, exchange the tapes, yours for his. Your judgment, for your judgment, Jesus' tape is played on behalf of uh, on your behalf. Everything that he said, did, thought, all that righteousness is now credited to you. Conversely, all the evils, and there are many that we have done, are played on Christ's account. He bore your guilt, believer, and he was judged for your wickedness. You see, friends, chapter 3 is a picture of us. It is a picture of us as filthy, sinful, covenant-breaking, and unfit to serve sinners. We're, eternal of, we're, we're worthy of eternal hell. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. That's the, ba- that's the bad news, and that, that should hurt. It's really bad news, but I'd say equally as important and more glorious than the bad news is that chapter 3 is a picture of Jesus. The angel or messenger of Yahweh, can be translated either way, is both judge and advocate. We we see him interceding for his people in chapter 1. We see it here. We'll see it in other parts. He interceded for us in his first coming. He is interceding for us right now in heaven. He's our great intercessor. If he is yours, you are chosen, you are cleansed, you are clothed, and you are crowned. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to invite the band to come back up um, as they're coming back up here. For our last song, uh, we're going to sing something I, I wrote about a decade ago that came out of this passage. Uh, so a, as, you, as you sing it, remember that you, like Joshua, are helpless. 
You're unholy and deserving of condemnation. But equally as important, remember, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we don't have to bear our guilt anymore. Leave it with Christ because we stand not condemned but secure with the Savior.